A person who starts smoking as a child or youth is less likely to quit later in life than someone who starts later. Almost 90% of adult smokers first smoked by age 18. Behavioral interventions may be helpful, but what does the evidence say? I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Brett Toombs, Professor in the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University, Senior Investigator of the Lady Davis Institute, Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. He is also Chair-Elect of the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care and Chair of the Tobacco Guideline Working Group. In their guideline published in CMAJ, Dr. Toombs and the task force reviewed the evidence supporting behavioral interventions for the prevention and treatment of smoking in children and youth. He is here to explain their findings. I reached him in Montreal. Welcome, Brett. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to be able to discuss our guideline. First of all, can you tell us why the task force thought it was important to address this topic at this particular time? There are a number of reasons. You've alluded to the fact that the people who smoke early on tend to be smokers later in life and continue smoking, have a difficult time quitting. Um, And as you know, the health risks of tobacco smoking are well documented. Half of uh, regular smokers die prematurely. Uh, The quality of life is significantly impacted because of cardiovascular and respiratory diseases caused by smoking. And uh, more than 85% of uh, lung cancers are linked to smoking among other kinds of cancers. So there's a, just a massive impact on, on longevity of life, quality of life, economic system. And smoking rates have gone down in recent decades, but they've, they've stopped at some point and seem to have kind of plateaued. And the rates are still strikingly high among young, young people. So as of last year, uh, it's estimated that about 18% of children and youth in Canada between grades 6 and 12 have tried smoking. And that's as high as 36% among youth in grade 12. So a lot of people are still smoking. And the main reason we chose this for this guideline is because our stakeholders emphasized how important it was at this point, that there was not any consolidated uh, evidence-based recommendations or guidance for Canadian family practitioners on, on what to do with children and youth about smoking. And they called for us to, to look at doing a guideline. Before we sort of launch into the recommendations and the findings, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about how the task force goes about developing the recommendations, you know, how are they graded, and who was involved actually in developing this guideline? Sure. So it's quite a lengthy process, Um, and as as I alluded, there's a topic selection process, so we go out to stakeholders. Stakeholders include uh, family practitioners, patients, uh, healthcare organizations, uh, and others, other stakeholders who make recommendations for areas where there really is a need for guidance. And this, this was clearly indicated as something that was a great need. Um, we also go out to, to stakeholders for looking at what kind of questions should we be uh, examining. If we want to see if whether, you know, smoking uh, prevention and cessation interventions work, how would we know? And, you know, we got feedback that people wanted to be sure that if they were going to do this, it actually reduced the number of uh, children and youth who were smoking, who you know started smoking if they hadn't smoked previously, and, it, and ideally you'd want to know that they would stop smoking later in their life. So we get all that kind of input from the outside, and then we we form a working group, and our working group of task force members uh, consults with uh, clinical experts who know this area particularly well, um, determines the kind of questions we need to ask, so that when we review the evidence, we we get answers to those key questions. Um, and then we work very closely with an evidence uh, synthesis and review center. In this case, it was a, a review center based at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, 
who designs a, a evidence synthesis or systematic review that goes out and looks at all possible evidence that can help us answer this question. Um, once we once we have the evidence, uh, in this case we're looking at randomized controlled trials. So basically, were children and or youth who were um, intervened with less likely to smoke uh, than children who weren't? And so we want to know if it works in that way. Um, we want to know how good the evidence is. So we, we, we grade all the evidence that we get. We look at whether there are methodological flaws in the studies that we're examining. We want to know if there's consistency of uh, results across different studies. And we'd be confident that they're all kind of honing in on, this, on, the, on the same answer. Um, we want to be sure that the results are generalizable. Uh, for instance, you, you, you would see that we did not look at adult uh, smoking cessation interventions for this because it's a whole different type of smoker. I mean, usually with adult interventions, there are people who are smoking packs a day, and that's not the typical youth smoker. Um, so we want to be, be sure that the, the, you know, the target trials are getting at the, the group of people for whom we want to be able to make a recommendation. Um, finally, we want to see what does the evidence say. Once we've, once we've screened all those aspects of it, how effective does the evidence show that the treatments might be? And then once we put that all together, we decide if how good is the overall quality of evidence. Is it high, you know, moderate, low, or even very low? And that informs us uh, with respect to how, how strong of a statement we can make and how confident we can be that, you know, that something would actually work and that it would be likely worth the resources to implement it. Because, if you, you know, as you know, anytime you implement, do something to, for one kind of healthcare problem, you're limiting the, your ability to do something else. We have a fixed, fixed amount of resources to, to take care of our population. Um, and, you know, once we've gone through all that, we pulled the working group back together. Uh, discuss the evidence, make a preliminary recommendation, and then the entire uh, task force weighs in on the recommendation. That's really helpful. So getting back to this particular guideline, what is the scope? Who's it for? Who's it not for? Essentially, this is for just about all children and youth. So this recommendation applies to children and youth who are 5 to 18 years old. If they have not uh, are not currently smoking and haven't smoked recently, we would uh, talk about preventing the smoking. If they have smoked recently, we would talk about getting them to stop. The only children and youth to whom this doesn't specifically apply are children and youth who have, uh, may have cognitive deficits, uh, mental or physical health issues at, uh, at a serious level, or a history of alcohol or drug abuse. The reason they're excluded is not because uh, smoking prevention and cessation is important in those groups, but because what we might say about it might not apply so directly that family doctors might have to make special considerations for those, for those groups of uh, children and youth. So you've talked about smoking. Now, what do you mean by smoking? Are you talking cigarette smoking? What about e-cigarettes or chewable tobacco? We're talking about uh, smoked smoked tobacco. So in, in almost all cases with children and youth, that's, those are cigarettes. We did not include uh, e-cigarettes in this guideline. Not because it's not an important topic. It's increasingly a key topic. It's something that physicians are faced with. Uh, the issue is that there really wasn't evidence. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky topic because on one, on one side of the coin, there's some real concerns about the health uh, implications of using e-cigarettes. Uh, those are increasingly, I know an article came out last week, which you might have seen in, in pediatrics, where they even talked about something called dripping, where um, youth are taking steps among uh, high school kids uh, to intensify the effects, of, the effects of the vapor, which of course intensifies effects of toxins and so forth. So there are real concerns about this as a as a noxious product in itself. At the same time, among adults, people are using e-cigarettes or beginning to try them out as a way to get people to stop smoking. So we didn't have evidence to do a guideline specifically on this. 
I think if physicians were, are, are faced with this, they're going to have to use their judgment. For all practical purposes, it would make sense to treat them just as they would cigarettes, smoke cigarettes. Okay, well, that's, that's helpful advice. I mean, certainly, you know, I think there's growing concern that youth are not seeing, um, well, they're starting to see e-cigarettes as glamorous and not as something that's a health risk. Um, but let's move back to then cigarette smoking here. So in terms of actually preventing smoking, so we've got kids who don't smoke, what does the task force recommend that uh, primary care physicians do? I think first and foremost, uh, we recommend that all, all primary care physicians speak to the children and or their parents about, about their smoking, whether or not they're smoking. So they need, they need to ascertain what, what the situation is. And then if they haven't smoked, we recommend that they suggest to the, the, depending on the age, the child and parents or the youth, if it's an older youth, that they discuss a little bit the implications of smoking and why it's important not to smoke. And that, what we've recommended is that they engage in basically providing information, providing information on the health, health implications of smoking, um, how perhaps to, to manage peer pressures around smoking, if that's a concern for the, the child or, or adolescent risk of smoking, and maybe even what they might want to do if, for instance, if they're smoking in the household. So any, any of those kind of considerations, they have a conversation. They may choose to share printed or electronic material, uh, brochures, newsletters, uh, an interactive computer program if they have access. We've kind of kept it simple. And so the most important thing is that the, the doctors use their position and their expertise in health to make the point that this is a, a serious problem and something that's going to have a real negative impact on health. So what if then you, um, you know, you ask the question and you find out that you've got a kid in your practice who does smoke? What did this task force suggest that a clinician do at that point? Essentially, essentially the same thing. So the conversation is then going to be oriented towards stopping smoking. And it's interesting when you look at the evidence because, you, you know, we, we divide this into preventing smoking or stopping smoking. Uh, and again, I alluded to this earlier, but when you look at adults who are smoking, they're, they're, they're usually talking about very heavy smokers who have tried to quit, or it may be a first time, but often have tried to quit, haven't been able to quit, smoking very heavily. And that's who gets in these kind of, these kind of trials, and whether it be drug or other uh, smoking cessation strategies. With kids, there are fewer kids who are smoking that heavily. So usually we're talking about kids who haven't smoked at all, or maybe dabbling a little bit, or beginning in our, on their way to becoming a real heavy smoker. So at this point, that's that's all we really recommend. That's the evidence is essentially looking at uh, fairly low intensity, short interaction, um, engagement with with patients and uh, with kids and their parents. Which actually, given everything that a primary care physician needs to do, something that's short and easy, um, it would certainly make sense in fitting in a day. Now, one of the things that I noticed with both the the recommendations you had is that they're both, you call them weak recommendations with low quality evidence. Can you tell your listeners a little bit what you mean by a weak recommendation and tell us a little bit about sort of the evidence and why it's low quality? Yeah, a weak recommendation basically means that that we think that most people would want to do this, but there may also be many that would choose not to. Now, why would we get to a, a weak recommendation? I, I think there's essentially probably two reasons we would do that. One is because you might find a situation where there's actually uh, fairly robust evidence, but there's clearly benefit, but there are also clearly substantial harms. And so each person in that case might want to just might have a different a different opinion on how they want to weight those benefits and harms. You know. Uh, is it worth it that I may have a better chance of living longer, even knowing I may get surgery that may may have really damaging effects on me? Um, and that's that's an individual decision. So that might be a weak recommendation in that case. 
Another reason for a weak recommendation is that we just don't have great confidence in the evidence. Uh, there are methodological flaws in the evidence or other reasons that we're not sure what happens. And in this case, you know, we were looking at a relatively small number of trials. Uh, they took very dis different approaches to the problem. So there wasn't one single intervention. So what people might be doing was a little bit tricky to distill. And the other reason was that the, the effects were small. Um, and we thought, you know, if there, if there were even one good trial that found something on the other side that this wasn't effective, the, the real situation could be that these just don't work very well in primary care. Our best estimate was that uh, brief intervention that we're recommending probably do have some effect, that there's not a lot of cost involved. They're unlikely to harm kids and adolescents, children and adolescents. So we felt comfortable making that recommendation, but we did want to be clear that it was weak just because we, we, we think there need, there's a great need for more research, uh, and we had some concerns about how confident we can be in what we know. So if there are any researchers listening to this, what are the kind of trials or CTs that you think are needed in this area? Well, for one thing, I think, and this is kind of a, a fairly generic answer, a lot of, the, a lot of the, we've gotten a lot better at doing trials in more recent years, in the last decade or so. And we just, we need more trials that are well designed and well controlled and with large enough numbers of children and adolescents that we really, we really understand what's going to happen. Whenever we're doing trials with humans, you know, we're not, we're not dishwashers, so we can't come in and, and you put in the plug and it pretty much works all the time. And we, we need to look at patterns. You need, you need a large number of people to do that. And I think that's really important. But the other thing that we really need, and this is, this is really a crucial need, is we need procedures and tools that could be feasibly implemented in primary care. One of the problems we have when we look at this evidence is that, you know, you might look at four or five trials and they all did something different. And they all had different combinations of sometimes somewhat elaborate procedures to address smoking. And the reality is, as you mentioned before, primary care physicians are, are overtaxed. They're being asked to, to deal with far more things than they can actually handle in any given visit. And so by suggesting that they put together a package of three or four different components, some of which might involve, you know, bringing in people with different expertise, getting their own training, uh, having electronic or print materials involved and put them all together. The end result is that they're not going to do it, and they just don't have the capacity to do it. So if researchers out there, what we really need, I think, is something easy. You know, and increasingly we're using electronic tools, and in, in behavioral interventions, they've been shown to work quite well in a lot of situations. And I think this is one of them. You can imagine that um, you put together a, a quick informational, educational, game or otherwise pack it on an iPad and uh, kids, adolescents can come into the office, they can do it while they're waiting and the doctor can ask them if they can just briefly touch base and make sure they understood it, make sure they've done it and, and do something like that. But I think some research that does something like that, that puts together a package that can be easily taken up by primary care doctors that's shown to be effective is really needed at this point. So the issue right now is, of course, that it sounds like from what you're saying that there aren't resources like that that are easily available. What, what can clinicians do in the meantime? Do you have any places to suggest where they can get some more information on these behavioral interventions that you're talking about or information that they could share with patients? No, it's an, it's an interesting problem because on one side I'm saying we don't have any easily deliverable uh, program, something like I've just suggested, that have been well tested, that we can recommend, you know, do this one. On the other side, there are resources all over the internet. And I think it's probably the case that most of them are reasonable, but they haven't been tested. So as a task force, you know, we're not, we didn't feel comfortable that we could make any specific recommendation for any programs out there, 
because there, there wasn't good evidence for doing you know, X program versus Y program versus Z program. Um, at, at the same time, I think physicians can go out there and find some resources. The most important thing is they deliver the message. They do it in a way that they're comfortable comfortable doing, and they they should find whatever method they think at this point works. Uh, whether it be providing some print material and uh, reviewing it with the kids, uh, discussing it on their own in a less less structured way, but whatever they're comfortable doing that kind of sticks to the the main message here, I, I think is what we can, we'd hope physicians would do at this point. Okay. Now, one, I mean, obviously we were talking this whole time about sort of behavioral interventions. One thing that that wasn't included in here are pharmacologic interventions, which of course are widely used in adults. Why were they not considered for the children? Yeah, none of them are approved for uh, children and adolescents in Canada. All right. So what we're left with really for clinicians, they need to sort of look, see what's available, see what they're comfortable with using in hopes that researchers listening will get out there and test some of these things. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, although our guidelines are oriented towards physician, I, I do hope, as you suggested, that there may be some researchers out there because I, I really do think this is one where where a good research team can pull together kind of some basic tenets of behavioral health and, and uh, intervention, put together a, a, a short program, package it on an iPad, and it would be very easily deliverable. So I think that's that's something I hope people, people do and that we'll, we would be able to recommend. Well, thank you so much, Brett. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Diane. I've been speaking with Dr. Brett Toombs, professor in the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University and senior investigator of the Lady Davis Institute Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. He's also chair-elect of the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care and chair of the Tobacco Guideline Working Group. To read the full guideline article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our podcast, please rate us on iTunes or leave us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels.